Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. He looked more like a, a kind of a harmless farmer. I might give you directions to the local pub. But in fact, he was a sophisticated criminal who stayed um, at the top of an organized crime operation for three decades. One of those people with a real volatile personality a short fuse and a capacity for violence it's hard to imagine uh, the level what that man had suffered at that in that experience i'm nicola talent and you're listening to crime world a podcast about criminals drugs and the sins of the underworld in ireland and across the globe he was the violent enforcer of sleeve rasheen mountain who operated with impunity for more than eight years, terrorising traitors who turned on the mighty Sean Quinn. His death from a massive heart attack as UK cops raided his Derbyshire hideaway two years ago played out like the final dramatic scenes of a John B. Keane play. But the end for Cyril McGuinness, a.k.a. Dublin Jimmy, only marked the beginning of an Armageddon for his tribe. And this week... Three hired help were convicted in the Special Criminal Court of the kidnap and torture of company executive Kevin Lunny. Today, I'm talking to Sunday World Deputy Editor Niall Donald about the late Dublin Jimmy and where he found the mercenaries to carry out one of the most shocking incidents in Irish criminal history. This is Crime World Extra, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Three men were convicted this week of the kidnapped and torture of Kevin Lunny, a fairly sensational trial that had run over 40 days and um, during which the prosecution named somebody that we had previously uh, ran on the front page of the Sunday World as the, the director of operations, basically, of this horrendous attack, um, Dublin Jimmy or Cyril McGuinness, and the prosecution said in court that he orchestrated this crime against Lunny and that he was the man referred to as boss 
when evidence was given of uh, the the attackers when Lunny heard them on the phone to him. So I suppose we start with who is Dublin Jimmy um, and uh, how does he end up as essentially the enforcer of Sleeve Rusheen Mountain? Well, uh, Dublin Jimmy uh, probably won't surprise you to realise he was from Dublin, um, you know, but he had spent most of his, a large part of his criminal career up around the border area, which is kind of unusual, I think. Um, He was from Swords originally, and uh, Dublin Jimmy had been, since the early 80s, had been involved in in crime. Um, I would say, like, it's fair to say it was not the glamorous end of organised crime, um, he's, but he certainly made an awful lot of money. Um, a lot of what he was involved in was uh, machine robberies. Um, you know, he, he'd be served in his early 20s. He'd become involved in a lot of criminality in Dublin City. He'd been working in the waste business. And, uh, you know, but sometime in the, in the 1990s, he seems to have moved into this uh, robbing of heavy machinery, which there's a huge market for. Um, and he was primarily involved in that in the UK, um, basically robbing machines, diggers, uh, you know, uh, other heavy machinery and shipping them back to Ireland. And they, by the way, I was told before, some of that machinery, as you call it, is valued at up to a quarter of a million. I mean, this is really high-end stuff used um, within the waste industry and other industries, but they are really, really super expensive. Yeah, super expensive. And obviously, like with, with, with Dublin Jimmy, as he became known, through the 80s and, and through the 90s, he became involved in with Republicans, uh, you know, part of it through serving time in prison. And they... You know, certainly in the border area, there seems to have been a market for this sort of this sort of machinery. And, you know, in in, in the 1990s. But of course, Jim, the difference with the Dublin Jimmy and maybe an ordinary thief was he was willing to back up all this stuff with extreme violence when necessary. Um, so in the 1990s in, in the UK, he served a sentence for um, he used a digger to drive over a Mercedes with somebody inside it and served a lengthy prison sentence um, after being in the middle of a robbery, an incident occurred. And then in 1997, he, he was also um, served a prison sentence for burning down a house with somebody who owed him money. So he was a very, uh, although, um, you know, he was involved in this type of crime, there was there was violence. And that that's what he was known as, even even as a, as a young man in swords, he was involved in, you know, he was there was incidents of him attacking Gardaí, uh, driving a stolen car at a guard. There was another incident where he was taken to court and he spits on a guard. And, you know, so a, a violent, volatile personality. A man with a quick temper, for sure. Um, there's some story that he used to tell himself that he served some time in a prison in Siberia. At one point, he was over there and got caught doing God knows what. But he claimed that... Um, they weren't fed in this prison. It was obviously freezing. And they were forced to eat rats, which ran across the cell floors, and they had to catch them and break their necks and then eat them. I mean, I had this vision of him ripping through them with his, you know, his teeth. and oh. But he did always say that he lost his teeth in that prison. He was a, a man of, I wouldn't have 
described him. He was no Jack Kennedy, was he? No, he was no Jack Kennedy, and he wasn't uh, one of the guys with the veneers and the uh, the Hugo Boss uh, jackets or, or even Canada Goose. But uh, but he did, you know, part of what he did was he seems to have marauded around around Europe um, after the 1990s and things went, went awry in the UK. He moved over to mainland Europe and basically took up took up the same business and seems to have travelled around Belgium, the Netherlands, that that part of Europe doing the same the same thing. Um mm. and you know there was there was um a significant court cases involved, you know, where where he was arrested himself and, and charged. Other people eventually came before the courts and served lengthy sentences ultimately after a long period of time. Um but yeah, he was he you know he was a a, a larger than life character by all accounts. Mm. So he's a gang boss. He's a smuggler. He has connections initially with the provost, later with the continuity IRA. He's said to be an MI5 agent at the same time. He started his career in Dublin, but moved up to Fermanagh, where he was living on the border. And he married. Um, he was he was married a long time, and I don't believe that. They had any children, but he strangely, for anybody who cares to just take a look at a picture of Dublin Jimmy, he does look like the kind of an individual who has just clambered out of a swamp. Um, I had two incidents, a few incidents actually, when I came up close and personal with him. And one of them was when I called to his home and we'll come to this, but it was around the time that... Um, a lot of incidents were happening in Sleeve Rasheen and against uh, former... Quinn uh, employees. Um, but he weirdly, for a guy into scrap machinery and marauding around Europe and these Siberian prisons and all these stories and even the way he looked, he lived in this really neat bungalow in Fermanagh. And, you know, the gardens were actually manicured. The front lawn was like something, it was like a carpet, you know, one of those yeah. lawns that you know people spend hours pouring anti-weed killer and all that on them. And there was like these little potted plants outside his door and there was like little flowers and stuff in them. But um, I called one particular day to his house and uh, knocked on the door, but you, I just looked in the window into the sitting room and I could see him. He was sitting in an armchair, really low down armchair, drinking a cup of tea. He looked as if he had a few nights dinner down his jumper and hair was crazy and... Um, he just immediately, you could just see the temper. He looked out the window, saw me, the fact that I was on his premises, I was at his door, and he sort of tried to propel himself up out of the uh, armchair, but couldn't, it was too low for him. And he was just roaring and screaming at me. I, I knew it was time to to leave, but um, it was just not the sort of place I expected him to live. No, and not like, I mean, genuinely the opposite of a of a, a bling gangster lifestyle. Um so I think that was that was uh, you know that was part of the the unusual factor of this guy that he looked more like a a kind of a harmless farmer and might give you directions to the local pub, but in fact um, he was a sophisticated criminal and a mm. sophisticated criminal with a with a, an ability to to organise and to enact violence on his on a, you know in order to commit crimes that really somebody who stayed. Um, at the top of an organised crime operation for mm. for for three decades, but certainly wasn't a, a Gucci gang uh, 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 Instagram gangster, and um, that's for sure. God no, 
No. Now, in 2011, um, he seems to have, or certainly the Guardi and the PSNI believe he began an eight-year reign of intimidation um, on Shlieve Roisin, that he was the man that was kind of behind a lot of these blockades, arson attacks, criminal damage, intimidation that began somewhat sometime after Sean Quinn was ousted and his family were ousted from their firms in 2011 after the Anglo bank fiasco and, um, you know, all that went on there. But it is believed that he made a lot of money doing this, that he was he was paid to direct this. And over the course of the years, as sometimes the you know, these attacks would intensify. Sometimes they'd, you know, they'd, they'd fade away a little bit. But he seems to have recruited a gang from within the jail systems. Um, and the first of the crew that would ultimately carry out this attack on on Kevin Lunny, um, that he, he seems to have met this guy that we'll have to call YZ, and the reason we have to call him YZ is that he's currently before the courts on other charges. He is convicted of this kidnap of Lunny, um, but he, he will be facing other very serious charges before the courts. So under law, we can't name him or identify him. But he seems to have met him in prison now. Yeah, he, he seems to have uh, met this guy. And these guys tend to gravitate towards each other in the prison system. It's just there seems to be a fact of life. Um, at this stage, uh, Dublin Jimmy, in, uh, as it goes up into the, the late 2000s, he's still heavily involved in, in, in you know, a series of complex organised crime. But one of them seems to have been um, ATM robberies, where you see the heavy machinery digging out the ATM machines up around the border area on both sides of the border. Actually, there was an epidemic of them, of these cases. Some, of, uh, certainly, a large number of them. Uh, Dublin Jimmy seems to have organised. And for this, he seems to have been recruiting uh, from across across the country to a degree. Um, but he, during his time in prison, somewhere along the way, he had, hooked, he had got to know this guy, Mr. Wisey, I suppose he will be called. Um, this guy was uh, ex- extremely well known to the Guardi, a suspect in two murders, um, you know, a couple of hundred convictions, not to get into the very specific details of it, but mm. a, a very, very volatile, dangerous criminal. Um, he had associations. He was a suspect in the 2016 shooting. Um, he was also um, had links to, the, I mean, it's been said he has links to the Keenan and Hutch gang, certainly knew them people, palled around with them, but really a kind of a volatile uh loner type of criminal and basically a muscle for hire. So a muscle for hire, but somebody who also appears to have committed crimes uh, through emotions as opposed to being paid for some of them. Again, I suppose in something similar to to, to Dublin Jimmy and that he seems to have had a, one of those people with a real volatile uh, personality, a short fuse and a capacity for violence. Again, not... I suppose what you'd describe as as an organised criminal, a very dangerous person, but not an organised criminal. So it seems that, you know, this campaign that Dublin Jimmy operated on, I mean, it, it went on for many, many, many years and he was a, the directing force and 
dragging people in. I mean, Mr. YZ would have had no association with with with, with that part of the, the country. Um, it's hard to imagine that he would have felt strongly about the ownership of the former Quinn business one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, you can be sure he wasn't. I mean, we used to see him regularly ourselves. Um, yeah, weirdly. Yeah, he would have been in or around... Um, Obviously, this is a very dangerous person, but extremely high, uh, involved in extremely violent crimes. But he would also be somebody we would have seen uh, as we left the building in the city centre where we work. He would have been out there drinking on the streets, shouting and roaring. Um, mm. He's always, uh, when I went off to get my coffee, he used to always shout at me, Hell yeah, Sunday world! Um, not, right. uh, not, 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 uh, not aggressively, actually, and he'd call me over yeah. for a word about being stitched up by the guards and all this, and I'll give you the story, no worries, and and all of this. But uh, yeah, it was a little bit. It was a little bit obsessed, perhaps, for a, a period of time with speaking to one of us um, along the street and and giving his story. Now, at this point, he was under investigation for for this Lunny crime. Um, as well as as, been... as well as others, and you know yeah. that that was that's the 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 funny nature of these things. I don't know, funny is the correct word, but the unusual nature that mm. these people are are you know known to be suspects for these things, known to be wanted in connection with crimes, but they're still out in the streets getting having the beers, to get their story into the yeah, Sunday world. Yeah, having having the drinks and looking to get their stories into the Sunday world. Now, Mr. YZ seemed to have been um, maybe the, the the connection between Alan Pegger O'Brien, Darren Redmond and uh, Dublin Jimmy. So it seems that he in turn recruited these other two guys uh, when he was offered this role in the, the Lunny kidnap and torture. So... What about Alan Pegger O'Brien? He's also 40, and we should point out that Mr. YZ is not a young 20-year-old either. He's 40 years of age at this point. Um, Pegger O'Brien. Well, again, uh, something something similar than, than to Mr. YZ in that he's a person with an extensive number of convictions. You're talking 100 convictions um, or suspecting 100 crimes anyway. Um you know, all of a certain type, you know, associate, as has been said in court cases about him, he has said about himself, somebody who battled with drug addiction and substance abuse and um, had been involved in burglaries, thefts, assaults. He's suspected of dozens of burglaries and had kind of been known, I suppose, as a as a gangland sort of hard man. And um, he's he he's. Described as being an associate of the of the Hutch Gang, and certainly would have grown up with some of some of the people that became figures in in the Hutch Gang. But again, a, a kind of a, a volatile um, uh, and kind of dangerous dangerous person, you know, who 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 has been involved in in you know, I suppose, targeting people in a very in an aggressive uh, manner. Mm-hmm. Um, he certainly seems to have been proud of his criminal pedigree, but like all the others in this case, um, you know, they would have worked for anybody who offered them money, really, weren't they? They were kind of low-hanging fruit as regards being criminals. They weren't anyway sophisticated or, or, or up the tree. They were the kind of guys that are recruited by anyone to do anything. They're the really dangerous criminals, actually. They are the really dangerous criminals, the people that have, have that, that uh, who are willing to use violence 
in almost any circumstance, um, you know, even in a small scale robbery where you're talking a few hundred euros, these are people that are willing to maybe face a, you know, a lengthy jail term just to get the money at that moment. And um, these are not people that are thinking long term, strategizing, planning, looking to make money at all costs, you know, the, the, the other type. I mean, Darren Redmond would be also have a reputation, uh, but far less convictions. Um, he, he has actually a single serious criminal conviction for which just for possession of a knife. But he would come from a he was come from East Wall, uh, similar to, to Pegger O'Brien, but it'd be coming from a very respectable family, actually, in East Wall. And uh, a younger man, he's 27. Mm. So somebody of a, a, a lesser pedigree than the others, but very well known to the Gardaí. From conviction point of view, a lesser pedigree, but nonetheless, he has been subject to a stop and search policy by Gardaí for a long time because he is somebody suspected constantly of carrying weapons and, you know, of being, or, or certainly having an ability to do... Yes, posing, sort of like a, genuinely posing a threat to the to the public, you know, um, mm. no doubt about it. So these three were employed by Dublin Jimmy to uh, intensify the intimidation that was going on um, against the former Quinn employees and in particular the um, the directors of the company. So what happened there was Sean Quinn, as we all know, lost his businesses and Sleeve Rusheen is quite an extraordinary place if you go up it's this mountain on the border and it's actually full of old smuggling routes, you know, like these that would have been there from 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 decades back. And uh, they're like little walkways nearly. It's a kind of a peculiar place. It's one of those border areas, those border mountains that there's nothing on it other than industry. And all that industry was created by Sean Quinn. And there's wind farms, there's cement factories, there's glass factories. It is literally just everywhere you look is the creation of Quinn. And he was, of course, Ireland's richest man at one stage. And legend has it that he became that way from hard toil himself and that he literally took up a spade and, and started building his first business on that mountain many moons ago. I mean, absolutely. Like, I mean, John Quinn was was the richest man in Ireland. I don't remember the exact figure, but you're, you know, a, a, a billionaire a number of times over. Um, but unusually, like in, in those cases where, you know, people become billionaires and all of a sudden they're they're living in another country, not paying tax and, and you know, investing all, all over the world. Sean Quinn really, you know, focused his business in the area that he was from. And, you know, that was a part of Ireland that maybe hadn't seen as, the you know, the gold rush of multinationals coming in. They weren't ending up in the border area for the most part. So Sean Quinn was, you know, a hero uh, in his local area. Um, but obviously the fallout from the collapse of Anglo-Irish Bank, um, you know, and the debts that were amounted, then that business was, 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 became into possession of the, the receivers and Sean Quinn um, lost control of the business. Um, mm. And that didn't go... He and his family were locked out of their firms in, in, in 2011. And, you know, there was marches, there was all sorts of... Pub um, public meetings held. Public meetings, like thousands of people showed up to these. Now, 
around that time and shortly after the, the family and, and he were locked out of the firms, this these crimes started to happen on that mountain. And in the first three years, as the Adventist group sort of shored up what, what was there and tried to sell off a lot of the, the Quinn Group assets to foreign investors were coming in interested in the glass factory and various other elements of it. Um, 70 crimes were reported at that time to both the Guardi and the PSNI. And they were sort of, there was blockades, you know, that the trucks couldn't get by. The um, the diesel pumps were cut off so as the trucks going in and out of the businesses couldn't refuel. There were steel spikes at one point left on the um, on the roadways so as the trucks were, you know, bursting their tyres and, and it was holding up all the businesses. There was boulders placed at the entrances to some of the factories. I remember going up there myself and trying to clamber over one. It was the like it was absolutely massive. You would have needed some sort of a large piece of machinery, maybe the Dublin Jimmy would have had to move them. There was um, fires set, the cables were cut, electricity poles were chopped down. I mean, at one point there was this this guy, this sort of, I won't name him, but he was known as a sort of a diehard supporter of, of Quinn. And he had gone down a manhole to chop the, to cut the electricity cables. And he had like electrocuted himself. <laughs> he had sent himself sky high and the hair was out, like as if he'd stuck his, his finger in a plug socket. Um, so, you know, all these things happened. Um, in 2013, the Lagan Group in Cork were sent a bullet in the post. They were at the time interested in buying up one of the... Um, one of these businesses. So all this was going on. Now, there was no, uh, there was investigations, but there was actually nobody arrested or charged in relation to any of these things. Um, the guards were investigating, the PS and I were investigating. They were just finding it difficult to get the evidence and, and I suppose to to break into a community. If you see in this case, um, you know, uh, in, in the case this week, you see how, how these people were caught, which is primarily through CCTV, mobile phone traffic. But, you know, obviously what was going on in, in very rural, a very rural part of Cavan, those things just weren't available to the to the police forces. And also people are moving back and forth across the border, making it twice as complicated. So also then, obviously there's violence, there's the threat of violence, and that really shuts people up, uh, you know, yeah. which is where police forces ultimately rely on on people coming forward. So that was the context in which Jim, Dublin Jimmy was operating. He seemed to be uh, impervious, really, to, to, to law enforcement for, for a long period of time. And he was absolutely using the border. He was moving between the north and the south all the time, it was believed, and moving in and out of various parts of Europe. Um, so... We identified him in the Sunday world for the first time in 2014 as the suspected, basically, boss of all this intimidation and damage that was going on. And I think it was that year that Quinn Industrial Holdings was set up and it was a, a conglomerate of some former directors of the companies who got together and bought out part of the uh, of the remains of, of Quinn Holdings. And Quinn himself, Sean Quinn, was brought back into the business in a kind of an advisory stroke managerial role. He was given his old office back and all his furniture was taken out of storage, actually. And um, 
there was champagne and there was parties that he was back, but things seemed to go pear-shaped between himself and his former directors. And he was ousted again in 2016. And between 2016, really, and 2019, that sort of violence and intimidation began to intensify again in the area. I think it was around that time that um, some of the homes of Kevin and to- Tony Lunny, the, the directors are Kevin and Tony Lunny, Liam McCaffrey, Dara O'Reilly and John McCartan. And each one of them would have been intimidated in some way. There was, um, they were under, you know, protection. There was a series of arson attacks on on cars and there was properties, former Quinn business properties being attacked. There was obviously then low level, a lower level of threats, graffiti, and uh, it all it all continued to to escalate um, up until up until uh, in that in the mid two thousands up until the point at which Kevin Lunny was was kidnapped. Mm. Now that was a an awful. I mean, that 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 when that happened, it was actually really hard to believe that it had actually happened in a country like ours. That he had been he had been watched at the time. I remember um, talking to some contacts up in the area who said that they believed that Dublin Jimmy had obviously had been directing all this for a long time and had particularly directed this um, incident. That they had it was. Rather than a personal vendetta against Lunny, it was kind of an opportunistic thing. They had placed reconnaissance or done reconnaissance on all of the five directors and he was seen as the easiest target or the one that they were able to get at. Um, so opportunity and logistics came into it. Um, but the three uh, gang members there that we have um, we have just spoken about, they went up basically hid as he tried to come back into his home, bundled him into the back of a car, um, beat him, brought him to a, a, a shed where they subjected him to horrific attack. Yeah, he was subjected to, I mean, it's hard to marry uh, the level of violence uh, really with the issue. Um, so he was, he had, he was bundled into, into a vehicle with a knife held to his throat and had, the initials QIH carved into his body. I mean, a horrific uh, experience. Um, you know, they also scraped his his fingers with a knife to try and eliminate DNA evidence, and you know, subjected to really a, a barbaric uh, mm. level of violence. They poured bleach over his his injuries in an effort to to kill off any DNA, and they were taking directions at the time on a phone. Um, from somebody they were referring to as boss, who'd later be identified as Dublin Jimmy. But um, Lunny was dumped on a roadside. And if you remember his own interview at the time, his very emotional interview, he spoke about trying to, he could see a light and he, he knew he had to try and get to the light. He had a broken leg and dragging that behind him on a roadside. He had been stripped. He was, you know, in a very bad way. And he, he really thought, I think, that he was going to die that night on that roadside. And it was the thoughts of his family as children that kept him going and and he eventually was picked up by a passing vehicle. Yeah, I mean ab- absolutely horrific and and Kevin Lunny uh, obviously attended the the court throughout the the trial um, 
and and relived all of that as as the evidence was was explained out again over the last um there was obviously a break but over the over the weeks of the trial so i mean it's it's hard to imagine uh, the level what that man had suffered at that in that experience and of course, having said all that, Niall, we're not suggesting for a second that Sean Quinn himself has had anything to do with this intimidation. He has always um, insisted that he he's nothing to do with it at all. Absolutely. And uh, in the aftermath of, of Kevin, the, the, the horrific attack on Kevin Lunny, um, he did an interview with Channel 4 and addressed it very directly. And he said, I'm telling you a month ago, I still had ambitions to go back to those offices and sort out the Quinn group, not today. And when he was asked why he had changed his position, he said, bluntly, Kevin Lunny, people can say whatever they want about me, he went on, but I don't want to be seen as being the beneficiary of abuse of criminal activity. Put it very clearly on the record. Now, in, in all this story, the irony, of course, was in November 2019, when the investigators had collected their evidence, their phone evidence, their um, CCTV and had identified the perpetrators and had identified Dublin Jimmy as as the boss man who'd organised this, had identified that he was at that point living in a safe house in Derbyshire in the UK. And there was a series of coordinated raids. I think 16 properties were searched that day. And when they burst into uh, Dublin Jimmy's English safe house, by the way, um, for a, a, a Republican. Um, he took a cardiac arrest and dropped dead. Yeah, I mean, I remember. Um, uh, I remember being in the office and and hearing it. I mean, it's it's shocking, and he was obviously well loved by his family and all of that, um, for sure, you know. But I mean, it was shocking to. It was just a, a shocking series of events. It just seemed to escalate and everything that happened seemed to have a, a an absolute shock factor. But he died. He died during a police raid, which is kind of a very rare occurrence. Uh, I didn't believe it when I heard it. Yeah. I just didn't believe it. Yeah. I mean, like he just. And then I did, because obviously, you know, when I thought back, he was such a high red colour. He was obviously quite unhealthy, unhealthy lifestyle. And, you know, this was, the game was up for him. And this house that he believed was, nobody knew of its existence. And he appeared to have a lot of uh, devices and, um, you know, laptops and phones, etc. And, and documents that perhaps were going to lead police to his hidden millions um, and the bank accounts and, and a trail, perhaps, of whoever was paying him to carry out uh, this campaign of, of violence. But yeah, it was it was um, it took a few contacts to confirm for me that he was indeed dead before I believed it. Yeah, it was just another another uh, extreme event in a, in a really uh, a really unusual kind of Irish story crime story. I don't think these these things kind of go on in another country in that way, you know. Um, but obviously it's certainly, um, in terms of the investigation, obviously Dublin Jimmy was the director. Um, I don't doubt that the police forces, all of the police forces involved, hoped to use, to arrest Dublin Jimmy and to use him to get to the person um, who's been known as the paymaster who was ultimately funding and and you know uh, and enabling this this campaign of terror really but that all 
came to an end with the with the sudden death of 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 Dublin Jimmy Cyr- Cyril McGuinness as is it to use his name um, and maybe that trail certainly becomes a lot more complex to to move past with the with the death of the of of Dublin Jimmy well we understand and we've been told that both the the, the joint um policing operation which was announced actually just hours after he died and I think a first time there was a joint investigation launched between the PSNI and the Gardaí that it is ongoing and um, there's a number of lines of inquiry presumably in relation to other people who may have been involved with Dublin Jimmy. Um, I'll just finish by telling you a little story about uh, Dublin Jimmy which would maybe have him spinning in his grave but um, I after he died I called to his home this manicured lawn bungalow in Fermanagh to see if I could speak to his wife because she had been um she had traveled to the UK and um she had been uh she had been questioned I think at the airport when she was when she was traveling over to collect his body um you know I thought maybe she might have known something about his involvement or maybe she wanted to deny that he had any involvement in what he was being accused of but I called up to his house with a colleague of ours a photographer Connor McCockey and uh, as we pulled in there was this very very dangerous aggressive looking dog that belonged to Dublin Jimmy and I had been told that he was obsessed with Saddam Hussein and he'd actually called this dog Saddam okay it was a husky and uh, it's like I like dogs as you know I'm a I'm a real I really really like dogs Mm -hmm. I have no problem with them but this dog was barking and he was running all around the jeep and he was he was showing his teeth and everything and I was a bit nervous about getting out and knocking on the door. I was hoping maybe his wife might come to the door, but there was this wasn't happening. And Connor turned around to me in a very sage-like fashion, said to me, Nicola, that dog is good. That dog won't touch you. And I just sort of, for someone who's largely suspicious, I completely took him at his word. Yeah. And he just appeared to be somebody who knew dogs. Like I just really felt he knew what he was talking about. So out I got and, you know, he was, Saddam was kind of spinning around my legs, but actually turned out to be a nice guy. I gave him a little pet. We became pals. I knocked on the door. Nobody answered. Gave him another little pet. He did another bit of barking, but we were good. And as I went to get back into the passenger seat of the car, Saddam ran jumped into the footwell and sort of did a little upside downsy face with me <laughs> looking for me to tickle under his chin. And I thought, my goodness, uh, Dublin Jimmy wouldn't be too proud of you here today. <laughs> but anyway, I had to kind of extricate him from the car in case I was accused of trying to run away with this animal. But um, as we were driving back, I said to Connor, like, you know, how have you been breeding dogs or, you know, how do you... How do you know about dogs? How are you so confident that Saddam wasn't going to savage me? He says, oh, yeah, no, he says, I know dogs. I have two Labradors. <laughs> I was actually taking advice from a guy that has Labradors. Yeah. Anyway. You have a way with dogs. Saddam. You have a way with dogs. I do, I do. People now that you have to try and work on. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, look. Niall, thank you very much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, 
why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.